Hey, uh, open up your Bibles to Jude chapter 1, Jude chapter 1. We've been in and out of Jude, but uh, just to point out a verse for you. Jude writes, he is a, one of the kind of half-brothers of Jesus Christ, and he writes in verse 3 of the only chapter of Jude, uh, Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you exhorting that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once down which was for which was once for all hand down, handed down to the saints for certain persons have crept in unnoticed those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and lord Jesus Christ Jude is talking about a different context than what we will be talking about today, but it is important to point out that sometimes false teaching needs to be countered, and it's very important for, for you. And not just so that you know how to win an argument, but so that you may be strengthened and established in your faith and not swept up in, in falsehood. And, and sometimes it's important as a minister to focus on things that are wrong and false. And it is not necessarily my favorite thing to do, but it is my calling to guard you and protect you. And I pray that through this message this morning even, even if it's a simple thing and a very specific topic, that it will even encourage your faith and strengthen you to defend your faith even more. So that you won't be swept up and caught off guard by any falsehood, but you'd be living in a world where falsehood is going to happen and you're expecting that, but you're also prepared to defend it. So today we're going to be talking about uh, Jehovah, uh, Jehovah's Witnesses. Um, I don't know if you have much experience with them, and you're probably wondering now, why do I need to know about this? There's probably a few reasons, I suppose. One of them is the reason I gave you. It's just good to defend your faith. It strengthens your faith. Maybe it doesn't necessarily um, win an argument against somebody else, but it's good for you to be strengthened in the faith. But also, I, it's, a, it's a growing movement. It's always been growing, and they're very um, aggressive in their evangelism. Perhaps you have had them come to your door and tell you certain things are true that are not true, and certain things are not true that aren't true. Maybe you've had questions in the back of your mind. Why are they wrong? They look so right. And that's why we want to talk about them today for just a little bit. And I've got a, a few slides. Um, but let me just say, on, on, on the surface, there might be a question in the back of your mind, how can so many be wrong? There seems like there's a lot of uh, Jehovah's Witnesses out there today. How can they be wrong? Or, as the title of the message goes, are they really wrong? Are they really wrong? There are, as of 2019, 8.7 million members of this movement in the world. There are over... Um, 230 countries that have some sort of a uh, uh, Jehovah's Witness presence in them, um, and this is just a funny slide. There are some uh, there are some uh, famous people that you may know that are connected to to uh, the Jehovah's Witness movement, uh, but most of them are just famous because at one point in their life they were a Jehovah's Witness, but now they are not. But um, 
You may know Michael Jackson. He is not a Jehovah's Witness, but he grew up in a Jehovah's Witness family. Uh, you may, may be familiar with a guy named Prince. He's from Minnesota, so I know him. But uh, he was Jehovah's Witness and obviously really popular people. So they, they make the movement, once again, look more regular, more normal. It's, it's just regular, regular Americans. It's nothing bad. Or how about this? Dwight uh, D. Eisenhower grew up as a Jehovah's Witness, and he's the nicest president we've ever had, so it's obviously okay. Or how about um, Serena and Venus Williams? They were or are Jehovah's Witnesses. I'm not totally sure about Venus, but uh, Serena, I think, recently was baptized. Um, And, of course, the one that's going to shock you all the most is uh, Luke Evans uh, grew up as a Jehovah's Witness, and you know him, of course, from Lord of the Rings. Uh, it's really hard for me to say which movie is worse, but uh, there you go, there you go. Uh, but anyway, so he is not anymore a Jehovah's Witness, but he grew up as one. So once again, there, there's lots of people that you may know that are connected to this movement, and once again, what the movement wants to do is make you think it is a regular form of Christianity, or actually, as they would say, the only form. Um, but you probably know a little bit about them already. They are known primarily for... Uh, their door-to-door evangelism. They are known for their Watchtower magazine. Um, they actually, in, in, initially, there was uh, they were they were pushing about like six thousand copies, maybe, of publishing. And now I was reading that they churn out about a hundred thousand books and eighty thousand copies of their two magazines daily um, from their publishing house in New York. Um, they, wait, that's the wrong slide. Uh, they, they claim Jehovah, not Yahweh, or the Lord is the rightful name of God. Um, they actually do claim that in the New Testament, the name Jehovah was in the original, the original manuscripts, and it's been taken out by evil church uh, leaders and replaced with words like Lord. Um, but uh, they believe Jehovah is the name of God, and they believe that they are his last witnesses on Earth, the, you might also know them very well from. You can't really see it, but it's the New uh, World Translation of the Bible. It's their it's their version of the Bible. It's really famous for John one one, and the word was a God. We'll look at that a little bit later. Um, you've probably seen their buildings. Um, they meet in places called Kingdom Halls, and they primarily do something there called Bible studies. I don't know if they'd necessarily call it a uh, gathering of, of believers or if they'd call it a worship service as much as they would call it a Bible study. But you've probably seen these buildings, right? You see them like that. They don't have any crosses on them. Um, they're very moral, uh, very moral to the point where they would probably be more... Does that say moral? You guys were snickering, so I'm always laughing. It's stretched out? Yeah, that was the best sign I could find. Uh, so... Uh, trying to find illustrations for you, right? Um, Probably to the point where you would say, wow, they seem more moral than me on some levels, right? They oppose same-sex marriage. uh, They oppose homosexuality. They oppose uh, abortion. um, They oppose any form of uh, sex outside marriage. They oppose uh, suicide. They oppose immodesty. They'll They'll be the most modest people probably in the building. They oppose gambling. They believe it's wrong. They oppose uh, illegal drugs, um, smoking and tobacco. Those are all evil and, and sins in their mind. They refuse to pledge allegiance to any nation. You won't see them pledging allegiance to a flag. Um, they, got, they get in trouble for this every once in a while when wars happen, and they are, they are refusing to um, participate 
in battles because they're pacifists normally. Um, the thing maybe you know them for is they don't celebrate birthdays. No birthdays in a Jehovah's Witness house. Um, they prohibit blood transfusions, um, uh, and they are baptized by full immersion. Um, that's kind of maybe the, the part that you know, but how, how did all of this start? Well, let me, let me introduce you to kind of just a little bit of a, a background for where this came from, and then we'll get into kind of what they believe. But just a little history here. Um, there, the history of the movement begins with a false prophet, and I know you're like, man, come on. Just like right out of the gates, you're accusing them of wrong. Well, it's, it's a real thing, actually. Back in 1840s, an American preacher named William Miller, who ha- since went on to kind of form the Seventh-day Adventist movement, which is a totally different message in and of itself, he was making predictions about when Christ would return. And he said, according to the Old Testament, that he had figured out when Christ would return, to the, to the year. And guess what happened? The year came... And nothing happened. And so, like, what, what would we say at this point? Well, you're a false prophet. But no, actually, another pastor came around and reinterpreted his prediction of Christ's coming to be a non-visible return. And this man was a man called uh, Russell Taze, or sorry, Charles Taze Russell. He's got a lot of first names in his name. Charles Taze Russell. Um, he's that guy over there on the left of your screen, not on the right of your screen, just in case you needed to know which man I'm referring to on this slide. <laughs> that was a joke recording. Uh, the, he, um, uh, he began um, as a teenager to really struggle with um, various doctrines of uh, the Christian faith. For example, he couldn't believe in eternal judgment, eternal hell. Also, he didn't find any reason to believe in the Trinity uh, he struggled with all sorts of things like this, and he began to study his Bible as a teenager and come up with lots of various views. And beginning in 18, the 1870s, he began, to, uh, or he began to lead a small group that met in his house. And as a teenager, without any theological training, um, he started to teach these attenders who soon began to start calling him a pastor. And, and once again, he started doing this while he was a Teenager, and I think there's a warning here from First Timothy um, three verse six about qualifications of elders and shepherds. Um, they should not be a new convert, lest they become conceited and fall into the condemnation of the devil. It's something about when you're a new convert, you really think you're right about something that you can really become puffed up. And I think that might be what had happened. He was like, well, all these people are following me, all these people are believing me. I must be true. And then he dug his heels in. That's just my suggestion for what happened. In 1881, he uh, further distanced himself from the Adventist movement, which was uh, William Miller's group, um, and he began his own publishing house that we know of today called the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society. In 1886, his publishing house began printing what would become um, his very critical studies in the scriptures. We'll refer to those again. Um, these are held almost in in on equal level with Scripture. They're critical for understanding Scripture according to the Jehovah's Witness movement. Um, and here's something interesting. Um, Russell actually believed in a future millennial reign of Christ on earth. And he actually predicted, once again, he didn't learn from William Miller, he actually predicted that Christ would return and set up his millennial kingdom in 1914. And, by the way, he died in 1916. 
And guess what happened when 1940 or 14 rolled around and Christ didn't come back and set up his kingdom? In fact, we had world wars instead. What do you think happened? Did he say, I was wrong, forget everything I've ever said? No, he said, I think I got it slightly wrong, but mostly right. Actually, it was, a, it was an ascension to the throne in heaven. And Jesus is now ruling the earth from heaven. So the millennial kingdom is in effect right now, but Christ is on the throne in heaven. He would die in 1916. A bit of fighting took over the movement after that, but eventually J.F. Rutherford took over. Um, and then after Rutherford, another guy took over named uh, Noor, and that's actually when they started being called Jehovah's Witnesses. Once again, they believe that God's true name is Jehovah. Jehovah, they believe that it was in the original writings of the New Testament, but there is not a scrap of New Testament manuscript evidence to back it up. And that's a significant problem to me when you see how far the manuscript spread, as we've talked about earlier in this summer. But there's not one little piece of evidence. We had a, we had a, a Roman Catholic church, whatever they want to blame it on, they, they had a church that was amazing at going through all the manuscripts and changing them all, but still allowing various other problems to remain and not change those. But that's what the Jehovah's Witnesses apparently claim. Um, they actually distance themselves from other Christians. They believe that they are the only witnesses for God on this earth. And just let that sink in for a moment. They believe that the original church was right. But then in the generations that followed the first century, corruptions happened, and then there was this massive movement to remove the name of Jehovah, and now they are the only witnesses left. And that also means that there were 1,800 years where God was without witnesses on earth. Think about what that means. Just think about that, right? God just said, I'm going to wait 1,800 years before I call to repentance um, the Christians that are not understanding who I am, all right? So we're going to talk today about what they believe. Let me just move on. We're going to talk about what do Jehovah's Witnesses believe, and then the second question I want to answer is how do you engage with them in a, in a good way, in a God-honoring way, in a helpful way to them, and in a careful way for you. But I'm kind of convinced that if you understand what they believe, that will help defend you against many of the things that they teach. But first off, I just want to unpack what do they believe. So let's talk about question number one. They, they deny the Trinity. That comes probably from his early days of, of being frustrated with the Trinity. They argue that it's a false teaching that was snuck in in the early centuries of Christianity. It's not according to Scripture. We could talk about the Trinity, but we're not going to. Uh, they deny the personhood and the deity of the Holy Spirit. They would rather refer to the Spirit as a force or a power emanating from God, but it's not, it is not a person, it is an it. When we would say he is a person and the third member of the Trinity, they deny eternal punishment for sinners in hell, which is crazy because they are so evangelistic. Um, but most significantly, and this is the biggest issue, they deny the deity of Jesus Christ. They deny the deity of Jesus Christ. Just a reminder, um, when you look at, and when I look at um, any form or group that calls itself a Christian, the, the critical three pillars that I want to know what they believe about are, are what do they believe about Scripture, what do they believe about the Savior, and what do they believe about salvation, or in a reverse order. Uh, salvation, Scripture, and uh, Savior. What do they believe about these three things? That will tell you if they are actually to be considered Christians. 
Uh, and I, I'm going to argue today, just by examining them from their own words, you will quickly see that they fail on all three of these tests. Like, it's not even close. It's not even close. Just like the Mormons, when you actually read what they write, you are shocked and appalled a little bit. Let's, let's first examine uh, what they believe about salvation. Salvation. What do they believe about salvation? They clearly teach that salvation is by works, and they basically deny grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And I'm going to, the reason I wanted to do a slideshow today, yes, was so that I could put a picture of, of Prince up there for you, but also so that I could show you what they actually say, particularly what um, Charles Taze Russell himself says. And here's some various things that they say. This is from a, um, this isn't actually Russell at this point, this is from a 1989 article in uh, the Watchtower magazine. Listen to this. Yes, there are various things involved in getting saved. We must take in accurate knowledge of God's purposes and his way of salvation. Then we must exercise faith in the chief agent of salvation, Jesus Christ. Could go on a lot about what they mean there. But look at this. And do God's will the rest of our lives. They're going to qualify it there with John 3 and Titus 2, of course. Salvation is sure for those who follow this course, but it involves preserving right to the end of our present life or of this system of things. Only he that has endured to the end is the one that will be saved. Now, perhaps you're saying, that's a little fuzzy. I mean, I could I could say that, yeah, that, that seems slightly scriptural. Maybe we're just misunderstanding them. Maybe they're actually saying the fruit of faith is, is, is works. Maybe that's what they're saying. But I'll read another article. I don't have it up there, but in a 18, or 1983 Watchtower article, um, it's titled, by the way, You Can Live Forever in Paradise on Earth, But How? They give these four requirements for eternal life. This is the four, the, the, how many? <sighs> four requirements for eternal life, according to Jehovah's Witnesses. Um, number one, and I, and I put a little title before these, but then the rest of them are, are their words. Number one, you need to grow in knowledge. Uh, Jesus Christ, they say, identified a first requirement when he said in his prayer to the Father, uh, this means everlasting life. They're taking knowledge of you, the only true God and the one whom you've sent forth, Jesus Christ. Knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ includes knowledge of God's purposes regarding the earth and of Christ's role on earth uh, as earth's new king. You will take in such knowledge by studying the Bible. But then they say, another thing, another requirement for eternal life is that you must do good works, perform good works. Uh, they say this, this is their words, not mine. Many have found the second requirement more difficult. It is to obey God's laws. Yes, to conform one's life to the moral requirements set out in the Bible. This includes refraining from a debauched, immoral way of life. And then they go on to say a uh, third requirement is that you have to be a part of the Jehovah's Witness organization. I won't read that. And then a fourth is you have to evangelize. So that is why they're so passionate about evangelism. Not because they actually care about you, because they don't actually care about eternal judgment, but it's because they are working their way towards eternal life. And if they ever stop working, they lose eternal life. So those are the four requirements. Um, they speak of good works, notice this, as one of many requirements, many requirements 
for salvation that comes along with believing in Jesus Christ. That is different than the biblical gospel. It's one of many things you have to do. You have to believe in Jesus, yes, but you also have to evangelize. You have to do good works. You have to be a part of the Mormon, uh, sorry, the Jehovah's Witness organization. So, do you get that? Do you get that? And actually, when you think about it like this, uh, that's where you, you really see how powerful this quote is and how damning this quote is at the same time time. There, there's, the context of this quote is very striking. Right before um, this quote happens, this is also what they say. Some suggest that, believe in Jesus, uh, believe, that belief in Jesus is the end of the matter. Then they quote somebody that they find. There is just one thing that anyone needs to do to get to heaven, says one religious tract. That is to accept Jesus Christ as his personal Savior, surrender to him as Lord and Master and openly confess him as such before the world. And then it goes on to say, yes, believing in Jesus is crucial to our salvation, but more is needed. That's what they say right before this quote. And then they say, yes, there are various things involved in getting saved. We must take in, once again, accurate knowledge of God, all those kinds of things. Do you see what they're saying? They're saying there are many things you must do to be saved. Many good things you must do to be saved. Matter of fact, if you dive into their teaching... The atonement is weak. It's not actually to, to actually pay the penalty for your sin. It's, it almost sounds like it's getting you back into a place where Adam was, where you can work for your salvation, where you can earn your way before God. It, it gets you back to ground zero almost. But we don't have enough time to talk about that. Just to point out a few verses, this is a common misunderstanding of false teaching. This is a common misunderstanding of people that just read through the Bible really quick and don't really think about what it says. Romans 3.28 says this, we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. And then Galatians 2, Galatians 2.16 says this, knowing that a man is not justified by works of the law but through faith in Christ Jesus. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Since by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. How do you get past that verse? By skimming over it, by, by arguing against it. That, that, this is a common misunderstanding, right? Of people that, that have a superficial understanding of the Bible. They mistake, get this, they mistake the fruit of your faith with the root of your faith. We believe that we're justified by faith alone and that faith produces, through the power of the Spirit, fruit in your life. For example, Galatians 5 goes on to say, we, through the Spirit, by faith, are eagerly waiting. Uh, we, eagerly, through the Spirit, turn away from opportunity for the flesh. We, eagerly, through the Spirit, serve one another in love. That is, that is the fruit of faith but not the root of faith. That's not the reason you're going to heaven. That is the sign that you're truly safe. The sign that you're truly justified by faith alone. But notice this. False groups always get this confused. Mormons get this confused. Jehovah's Witnesses get this confused. They, they think they're understanding the Bible, but they're actually misunderstanding the Bible completely. That's what they have to say about salvation. But let's look at another one. What do they believe about Scripture? What do they believe about Scripture? Well, once again, they would claim that their movement is based on Scripture alone. We've been studying the Scriptures and we've come to these convictions about who Jesus is and who Jesus isn't and what you must do to be saved. But if they're being honest, they would actually say that Scripture in and of itself is insufficient. You need additional teaching. 
In other words, they would say, you, you need to have our material in your hand and be reading this along with Scripture if you're going to ever understand Scripture the way we understand Scripture. And that, once again, is what, ladies and gentlemen? That is saying, this is equal with Scripture, which means this is over Scripture, right? That is what they are saying. Um, listen to what the Watchtower magazine says about itself. Listen to what Jehovah's Witness teaching says about itself. It, this, we, it is God's sole collective channel for the flow of biblical truth to men on earth. Did you forget about the Bible? Or how about this? In speaking about uh, Russell's studies in the scriptures, uh, they are said to be the Bible in arranged form. This, this is a systematic understanding of the Bible. It's, it's really helpful because it helps you understand the Bible, they would say. And with that, they would also say, um, these are more than mere comments on the Bible, but they are practically the Bible itself. This isn't just a study Bible. This isn't just helping you understand what the Bible says. This is practically the Bible itself. And, and look at, listen to this quote. This is, I believe, Charles Taze Russell himself from a Watchtower article, September 15th, um, 1910. says this, People cannot see the divine plan in studying the Bible by itself. If he, a hypothetical reader, uh, then lays uh, them, that's the studies of Scripture, aside and ignores them and goes to the Bible alone, though he has understood his Bible for ten years, our experience shows that within two years he goes into darkness. On the other hand, if he had merely read the Scripture studies with their references and had not read a page of the Bible as such, he would be in the light at the end of two years because he would have the light of Scripture. Think about that. You can have the studies of the Scripture and be fine all alone. But you can't have the Scriptures all alone and be fine all alone. Red flag, anybody? Right? They, they would say, we are saved by the Scripture studies alone. That's essentially what they're saying. You don't actually need the Bible, you just need our understanding of the Bible. If that doesn't make you uncomfortable about their claim that they believe in the Bible, I don't know what will. Or, or hear this one. They warn people against reading the Bible. They warn their converts against reading the Bible. From time to time there have arisen from among the ranks of Jehovah's people those who, like the original Satan, have adopted an independent, fault-finding attitude. That's me, by the way. Um, they say that it is sufficient to read the Bible exclusively, either alone or in small groups at home, but strangely, through such Bible reading, they have reverted back to the apostate doctrines that commentaries by Christendom's clergy were teaching a hundred years ago. If you read your Bible alone, you'll turn away from the Jehovah's Witness faith. Think about that. That's what they say. They say, you, you have to have this over Scripture, otherwise you do not have what? Salvation. You do not have salvation. But, believe it or not, that's not even the worst thing that they believe. Um, ten minutes left. We'll see how that goes, right? Uh, what do they believe about the Savior? What do they believe about Jesus Christ? This is the biggest problem, if there could be. <laughs> they say that Jesus is the first 
creature of God. And, and where do they go to find this? They, they point to passages like Colossians 1, where it says he is the firstborn of all creation. But they would say the Father is Jehovah. Jesus isn't Jehovah. The Father is Jehovah. They, they say this in a Watchtower article. Scripture, therefore, show that Jesus is not God Almighty. Um, another article, they say, the phrase Son of God refers to Jesus as a separate created being, not as part of a trinity. Um, Jesus, another article says, Jesus, no more or no less than a perfect human, became a ransom that compensated exactly for what Adam lost, the right perfect human life on earth. But notice he's only a perfect man. If Jesus, they say, were God, then during Jesus' death, God was dead in the grave. And that's their biggest argument. Uh, They believe that Jesus is the first creature, a divine creature, an angelic creature. Matter of fact, they would say he he is Michael. Whenever you see Michael in the Bible, that is actually Jesus. But that is not saying that Jesus is God. He is just an angel. That's basically what they're saying, a divine angel. Now, open up your Bibles. This is a fun little game I like to call, Can You Spot the Differences? It's not a very fun game, and it really was made up by me three seconds ago. But turn to Colossians chapter 1, Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, and the game is, can you spot the differences? Now, once again, they believe in the Bible alone, as it's rightly interpreted, according to the true meaning of the Greek words, of course, and everybody else is a sham. Here we go. I'm going to pull up uh, Colossians 1. 15 through 17, this is the New World Translation. They say this, He is the image of the invisible God. This is referring to Jesus, the firstborn of all creation. Because by means of him, all other things were created in the heavens and on the earth, and the things visible and the things invisible, whether they are thrones or lordships or governments or authorities, all other things have been created through him and for him. Also, he is before all other things, and by means of him, all other things were made to exist. Can you spot the difference? Anybody? Anybody? I actually missed one, as you see on the slide. Right? Did you see that word, little word, other? They're saying, okay, well, it's not in the original. But sometimes English Bibles have to kind of bring in a word to help understand what's really being communicated. And they would say, look at that. He is the firstborn of creation. That must mean he was created. That must mean all of these things must be things uh, besides him that were created after him through him. So, so they're saying, like in context, it, it must be other things. Now, you could maybe argue for that, possibly, if firstborn meant first created, but it doesn't. It, it doesn't mean that at all, but this is what they assume. There's actually zero manuscript evidence for this other thing, but let's just talk about firstborn of all creation. Firstborn doesn't mean ever first creature. For example, look at Colossians 1.18. What does it say in 1.18? He is the head of the body of the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Was Jesus the first person to ever rise from the dead? Throwing some shade over you, Lazarus, Lazarus, Lazarus. No, he wasn't the first resurrected person, was he? No, so firstborn is, is, is a title of, of, of prestige. It's saying he is the 
top one, the preeminent one. He holds sovereignty. He is the, the firstborn and holds all of the sovereignty in the family, the power. He is son over all. He is firstborn in his authority. That's what it's saying. He has all authority because he is the eternal son of God, the firstborn son. That, that's what it's saying there. That's, that's how it works. But also turn over to John chapter 1. This is the one that is particularly interesting to me. John chapter 1. We don't have time to really talk about this for a long time, but I I want to make one comment. John chapter 1 in the New World Translation says this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God. This one was in the beginning with God. All things came into existence through him, and apart from him not even one thing came into existence existence. Notice that they change it pretty significantly from the word was God to the word was a God. And and they're really creative here. They're saying, hey, if you look in the Greek, there's no definite article, which means this is a definite person. It's it's just it's just an arthros. It's it's by itself. It's it's the word was a God, right? Oh okay. Okay, but did you know did you know that verse eighteen also has that exact same grammatical construction? Matter of fact, verse eighteen uh, reads this in the New World Standard Bible. It said, no man has ever seen God at any time. The only begotten God, that's lowercase in their Bible, who is at the Father's right hand is the one that has explained him. Okay, so they're consistent, right? So he's a lowercase God in verse 18. He's a lowercase God in verse 1. But the problem is they're not consistent because this same construction happens in verse 6. Their version says, there came a man who was a representative of God, big G, God. And his name was John, but that should read a representative of a God, according to their great scholarship. Or, even worse than this, John 1.12, you can see it in your Bible, in the Jehovah's Witness version, it says, however, all who did receive him, he gave authority to become God's children because they were exercising faith in his name. But that should read, they, uh, he gave authority to become children of a God. But they can't say that, because that would mean the Father is a God. And they can't say that. But once again, because they're looking at the Greek in a very simplistic way, they're saying, well, if it doesn't have the in front of it, we don't have to say it's capital G. But then that totally means that God the Father, according to verse 12, is nothing more than a mere lower God as well. Now, that was a lot to say, that they're not consistent. They're not consistent in how they translate the Greek. They, they have chosen they have chosen to mistranslate to fit their theology. That's what they're doing. And it's very obvious to see if you know anything about Greek. It's very obvious to see. And no other translation in the history of translating the New Testament has taken this uh, this to mean this, except for one translation, I suppose. That's an 1808 Unitarian Bible version, and I don't know if you want to trust them, but there you go. All right. But no other scholar of Greek has read this verse this way because there's clearly more going on there than just saying this is not referring to the true God. Let's talk. Finally, I forgot to put that up. <laughs> How should you? engage with Jehovah's Witnesses. I would, I would recommend that you, you talk to them carefully. Because once again, they're meeting twice a week, 
basically just to have Bible studies so that they can prepare themselves to beat you in an argument. Once again, their evangelism is just to beat you, not to actually love you. You should be careful in how you interact with them. They are trained, and they are convinced, and probably the average Jehovah's Witness knows how to beat your arguments more than you think, right? But you should also talk to them lovingly. They may not believe in the eternal judgment of hell, but it is what Scripture describes and declares. And they are going to hell because they have not received Jesus, the true Jesus. They've received a false Jesus. They are, as Paul would say in Galatians, accursed, headed to hell because of the false doctrine that they hold to. But you should also, lastly, and these are similar to my points for Mormons, you should talk to them shrewdly. You, you should, here, here's an idea. Challenge them to do the most dangerous thing you could challenge a Jehovah's Witness to do. Try reading your Bible without, without all of these study helps and see what conclusion you come to. You say you believe in the Bible. Have you actually read it? Or are you just reading other people's notes on it? Have you ever read that verse in context? Have you ever seen what it said? Have you ever read all of John 1 and thought about every single verse, particularly John 1, 12? Have you ever read your Bible? Have you ever read it? Challenge them to do the dangerous thing of reading their Bible. Show them the grace of God in the gospel apart from works alone. Now, if, if I'm a Jehovah's Witness, I am worried day in, day out that I'm going to fall away from the faith. But when I hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, when the jewel of the gospel is revealed to me, I will rejoice in the grace of Christ Jesus. Because Galatians 2 is fabulous. It's not by works that I am justified before men. Matter of fact, Paul would say, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is glory to me. It is glory to me. And also, maybe learn a few good questions. Um, if you are interested, a good website, apologetic website that I have been helped in is called karm, uh, C-A-R-M dot O-R-G. Um, they have tons of information on Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses, and they also have a lot of great questions you can ask them because they are studied. But some basic questions are, uh, oh, why has the movement itself made false prophecies? Once again, going back to the early days when uh, they were predicting Christ would come and then prophecies changed in their interpretation. Uh, you, they can't argue with this. Why have they made fa- false prophecies? What is what is what does the Bible say about a prophet that's wrong once? That's a good question. Uh, why has it altered the translation of the Bible? That might get into more weeds than you're ready to do, unless you're studied. Uh, why does the watchtower say you will fall into apostasy if you read the Bible without the watchtower? Um, why are you not allowed to examine your own organization and its problems? Why does it tell you what to think and do? There's some pretty extraordinary quotes out there about how they basically say, you do not think for yourself, we think for you, right? And you could even go with even more specific questions as well if you really want to get into some interesting questions. Where in the Bible does it teach that Jesus is Michael the archangel? Or how about if the New World Translation condemns false prophesying and states that it is proof that God is not speaking through that prophet, then doesn't this prove that the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society is not speaking for God? Well, that's a more drawn-out version of the question you could ask 
uh, ahead of time, but maybe even a more significant question is, must the Jehovah's Witness obey God's law in order to have his sins forgiven so he can go to paradise earth, even if the Bible says no in Romans 3, 28 and 4, 5? And just in case you're wondering, in the New World Translation, this is what Romans 3, 28 says. We consider that a man is declared righteous by faith apart from works of the law. Or in Galatians 2.15, who we who are Jews by birth and not sinners from the nations recognize that a man is declared righteous not by works of the law, but only through faith in Jesus Christ. So we have put our faith in Jesus Christ so that we may be declared righteous by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, for no one will be declared righteous by works of the law. Did you know you can lead someone to the truth of the gospel in a very primitive form through their own Bible? But you have to know what you're doing, and it's, it's only a matter of time before these get retranslated. But there you go, right? Do you actually believe you are saved by works? And if you do, what do you say to these verses? What do these verses mean? I know what they mean. And I know the God and the Savior, the eternal Christ, who gave them to me. And I know the eternal Christ who has died for me. And I declare to you that you can be forgiven of all of your sins. That Christ Jesus came to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. And you are the foremost. And you, by believing in him, can have your sins completely forgiven. And have eternal assurance that when God comes, you will see him as he is. And you will be transformed into his image as bad as you are on your worst day. Not on your best day, but on your worst day. Because I'm telling you, if you're trusting in your righteousness alone, when Christ comes, that's going to be your worst day. That's going to be your worst day. It goes without saying that there are many false teachings out there in the world, aren't there? But to those who know their God through the word that we've been given, there is great opportunity and a great harvest field that we can even pursue in this life. Let's pray. Dear God in heaven, thank you (coughs) for your mercy and your grace. It's not by works that we've done in righteousness. Titus 3 tells us that, but it's by your own mercy, your own compassion. And we pray that we would be instruments of your mercy and your compassion to open blind and hardened eyes to see your truth. I don't know how this message is going to impact these students, but I pray that you would use it in your own providence and in your own purposes to strengthen their faith, to encourage their faith, and even to enable them to be witnesses, true witnesses of your faith. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.